Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to have a kind of participatory lesson, at least in the beginning. We're going to start a new message today. It may run two or three times. Yeah, you can start running the clock. Okay. (laughs) And we're going to deal with the fundamental question, which is why do we study the word in the Bible? Why do we study the the Bible? And I want to get some feedback from you to start out with. So from anyone here this morning, why do we study the Bible? Why do we study the word? We, we need uh, mics. We're looking for crisp, succinct answers. If you want to do the message, I'll sit down and have you come up here. <laughs> okay. To renew our mind according to the word, to be reminded of our identity in Christ. That's a good one. Anyone else? That's a good one. So we can successfully apply the word of God. One in the back here and one up front. To increase our faith. To increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's a good one. Uh, go ahead. I was about to say the same thing. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And because we cannot please God without faith, that's why we start the word of God so that we can please God. Excellent. Anybody else? We have one right here. To mature and grow in the word of God and to be able to speak the word of God, speak it clearly to others. Amen. That's a good one. Uh, Over here, we'll get around to everybody. In fact, if you want to talk all morning, we'll talk all morning. (laughs) We study the word of God to have the victory. Amen. To study the word of God so we can have the victory. It's a roadmap for our lives. That's a good one. It's our GPS. Uncle Balti, we have one here. Man of God. Okay, go ahead. Well, the Bible, like, uh, a further stage, you fill yourself up. Uh, spiritual food or physical food. We need spiritual food. So uh, if you get hungry, you eat physical food. To read the Bible, you get spiritual food. And we need, Amen. We need, we need Amen. spiritual food in the Bible. Amen. Amen. Since you're over here, we'll go back over there. Keep going. We'll do the whole message this way. Right here. You have right here. Excuse me. I want to know what you think. To transform our inner selves to be in the exact likeness of Christ. Okay. So we can learn how to ultimately be like Jesus Christ. Oh, you have one? Does Baron have one? Over here? Do we have another one? Over here? To know the truth. To know the truth. Ellen A. just quoted that scripture. We shall know the truth and the truth shall do what? I so control. Make us free. He says control. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. 
No, that's a good one. Did you hear what Barron said? Said, so we can learn self-control. Uh, right here. That's a good one. Anybody else? A couple more. Right here. To know God's way of doing things and because he told us to. To know God's way of doing things. Uh, in the back. We'll do a couple more. We study the word of God to know God's will for our lives. To learn God's will for our life. Yes. To draw near to God. I'm sorry? To draw near to God. Yes, absolutely. In the back. Um, we study the Bible to know who God is, who we are, who Jesus is, and how to live the Galatians 5, 23, um, the character of Christ. That's what I believe. Amen. These are all good. We have one more. To be able to defend the faith that you believe in. Very good. Excellent. All right. These are all good. These are all good. So we're going to look at this fundamental. I had something else in mind uh, for today, and it was a prompting, really, uh, we say of the Holy Spirit, to do this message, which is entitled, Why Do We Study the Bible? Why do we study the Word in the Bible? Now, everything that everybody said is good, is applicable, and it's something that we can apply in terms of responding to this question. But let me begin with this. We study the Bible first and foremost because it represents the what? The inspired Word of God. This book is the Word of God. This is God speaking to us. And I'm going to take you to scriptures to back up everything that's said today. So let's back this up by going to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to go slow so everybody can get this. Because this is fundamental to why we are Christian believers. It's fundamental to why we come to church. It's fundamental, ultimately, why we come to this church. 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. When you're there, say you're there, or you have it. It reads here that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, what that means is that God's Holy Spirit breathed into the writers who were writing the Bible and directed the writers to write what they wrote. God's Holy Spirit. That's what it means by God breathed or God inspired. Now this is set forth uh, also in 2 Peter and I want you to see this. So we're going to take our time slowly and go to these scriptures this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to look at verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1 and verses 20 through 21, which says this, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, the Bible is the word of God as inspired by his Holy Spirit. As someone said over here, I think it was Winnie, it's 
our roadmap, it's our GPS in terms of how, or Betty may have said that, how to live, our guide for living. Now, as we continue to explore this, it's important for us to understand as David did and go to Psalm 138, verse two. Psalm 138, verse two. And when you have it, say you have it. And the reason we're gonna go to the scriptures and I'm gonna take time to make sure you do that is that we're gonna get the answer to this question from the word itself. Not anything that we make up, not anything that some scholar wrote. We're gonna find the answer to this question from the word itself. So the word already has told us that it's, the, the Bible is the inspired word of God. So David in 138, Psalm 138 verse two says this, he says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name. That's how much God holds the word or his word in esteem. He magnifies a word above his name. Now the supremacy of the word is echoed by Jesus who says this in Matthew 24, 35. Matthew 24, 35, and I'll give you a chance to get there because I want you to see this. Our answers are, are gonna come from the word itself. Matthew 24, 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, and remember his words are God's words, but my, gar my words will by no means pass away. In other words, when the world and the universe, everything in it, no longer exists, God's word still remains and reigns supreme. And it does so because the word is eternal and everlasting, like God himself. God is his word. God is telling us to hitch our stars to his eternal and everlasting word. Now, I'm gonna give you one more scripture to help us understand the power and the importance of the word. And this is one that we all know. It's Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. When you're there, say you're there. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, <laughs> that's a lot. And I could devote a whole lesson or more to this one scripture. But for now, I want you to focus on the revelation shown here that the word of God is living, meaning that it's alive. And I point this out to you for this reason. And a lot of you have had this experience because you've shared it with me, and I certainly have had this experience. The word is alive. Whenever you experience a light going off in the head, you know, that light bulb going off because you now understand the scripture, or you now are able to say, I really get this now. That's the word speaking to you. Whenever you find a scripture that you say, my God, that's just what I was looking for. It answers what was on my mind. It explains what's going on. It gives me a better understanding of how to deal with the situation I'm bleeding with. That's the word speaking to you. It's alive, it's living. As one person said, you could take the Bible, if you cut these words, they would bleed. 
because they're vascular in nature, meaning they have life. They have life. So the first reason we study the Bible is that it is the revealed word of God, the inspired word of God from God. In magnifying his word above his name, God is showing us how important the word is and that we should focus and stay focused on his word. Now, the second reason we study the Bible is this. Go back to our first scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which says, all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, number one, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Let's focus in on doctrine, because this is important. The doctrine represents the core beliefs of a faith, of a church. It represents, in other words, our doctrine here, which is our statement of faith, represents what we believe, what we believe in. It represents the tenets of our faith and so forth. So the word of God is profitable for developing this doctrine. I want you, all of you who have a church bulletin, to go to the back of the church bulletin and take a look. In some cases for the first time, No, actually, you have looked at it many times. Let's say for the first time, read it. And what is it called? And Ian, are you going to put it up on the board? Maybe it's up there already. He's going to eventually put it on the board. Anyway, this is our statement of faith. This is our doctrine. This is what we believe in. But has it ever occurred to you, where do we get this? Is this something that Apostle Price sat down in his study one day and wrote? Or did some other leaders in the Christian movement write these things and we adopted them and so forth? Where did these come from? Remember what 2 Timothy says, all scripture is given uh, by God and is profitable for doctrine. The statement of faith, our doctrine comes from the word itself. And so that you really understand this, we're going to go over the statement of faith for the first time. This is the first time that, I, that, that, that I've been here in New York for 16, 17 years. I don't think anyone has taken time to go over our statement of faith. We sort of take it for granted. We're going to go over it today, so we're going to take our time. We're not going to rush through this. So when we finish, you will know and know that you know what you believe, what you're tenets of faith are. So let's look at the first one. It says in, this is our statement of faith, in the triune God. Triune is simply a word for the Trinity, the Godhead. That's the Godhead of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity. That is God in one person, but expressing as himself, the Father, I mean the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, go to 1 John, that's little John, next to Revelation in the back. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 7. Familiar scripture. So you can relax. We're going to not rush through this. We're going to make sure you have it. And you will be able to tell anybody what you stand for what your church stands for, and why you attend that church, why you read and study the Bible. 
First John chapter five, verse seven says this. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and you know the Word is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's the Trinity. The three are one. They express as Father, they express as Son, they express as Holy Spirit, but the three are one. Now, it's God in three persons that we first see in Genesis 1.26. Go to Genesis 1.26. And you've been there so many times and you've heard this so many times. Not always understood, clearly. Elder Ivor explained it uh, to us uh, some weeks ago. An apostle, of course, has explained it. I think I've touched on it uh, a number of times. Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so people used to ask, were there other gods? <laughs> were there other gods besides God? No, when he's referring to us and our, he's referring to the Godhead, through the Trinity of himself, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's the triune God that we believe in, our first statement of faith. The second one is that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Now, what does this mean? Now, I actually explained this in a message, I think, I think it was last year, but since it's part of our statement of faith, I'm going to explain it again this morning. Jesus is not half God and half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And Isaiah foretells this in Isaiah 9, 6. Scripture you're familiar with, you may not remember where it is, but go there this morning, Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah foretells this duality of Jesus, the man and the God. For he says in verse six, for unto us a child is born, a child is born, that's the man Jesus. Unto us a son is given, that's the divine or God Jesus. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, Jesus is not half man and half God. He is 100% God and 100% man. Now there's a fancy name that the church gave to this uh, existence years ago. And it's the Greek word theanthropos. T-H-E-A-N-T-R-O-P-O-S. I'm gonna spell it again so you can look it up yourself. Theanthropos. T-H-E-A T-H-E-A-N-T-R-O-P-O-S. This is Greek. So Jesus is theanthropic, meaning he's God and man at the same time, but 100% of each and so forth. Uh, that's a word that I gave to you some time ago too. You may not remember it, so if you didn't write it down that time, you can write it down. And when you look it up, you'll get an explanation of this God and man uh, reality of Jesus the Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures that relate to Jesus as God and a couple that relate to him as man. 
as I said, we're going to take our time and go over this so you will know that our statement of faith is derived from the word in the Bible. Now, these are some scriptures that relate to the God in Jesus Christ. Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 28. John 20, 28. When you have it, say, I have it. You remember the story of uh, Doubting Thomas who said that I would not believe that Jesus resurrected until I can put my hand into the wound in his body and so forth and so on. Well, when Jesus appeared to them, he had Thomas come up and do that. And when Thomas had done this, this is what Thomas, Thomas said. John 20, he says, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. That's recognizing Jesus as Lord and God. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. Hebrews one, verse eight. <laughs> Hebrews one, verse eight. When you're there, say, I have it. And it reads, but to the son, he, and the he here is referring to God. God says, your throne, O God. This is the father speaking to the son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Number three, in other words, God recognizes Jesus as God as well. I don't mean God above him, but as part of him and recognizes the divinity of Jesus. Now, the third one is Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, verse 13. And if you don't find it, just write it down. You can check it out later. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says this, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here are a couple of scriptures that relate to the man, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. And I could give you many, but I just want to give you a sampling so you know that our statement of belief is derived from the word. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. You're there? This is where Paul writes, and I quote, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This is telling you that Jesus is a man born according to the flesh. And then I'll give you just one more. Back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. That's little John, next Revelations. 1 John 4, verse 2, which says this. That's 1 John 4, verse 2. It says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus came as a man in the flesh is of God. Now, let's go to our third statement in our statement of faith. And that is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I spent weeks on this last year when I discussed the Holy Spirit and gave you any number of scriptures. But I will give you just one scripture. The Holy Spirit, as you know, is God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that he is a person. In John, Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, that's John 14, verses 16 and 17, 
Jesus says this, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. The helper is the Holy Spirit, that he will abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive. First of all, let's back up. Give you another helper that he will abide with you forever. That's designating the Holy Spirit as a person. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. And uh, I'll say more about this a little bit later, but we spent weeks and weeks and weeks upon this last year in my series on within uh, dependence. Now, number four, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, that was our beginning scripture. That's 2 Timothy 3.16, which we began this discussion with. 2 Timothy 3.16, which you looked at already, says, again, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness. Number five, we have about 13 of these, by the way. But you need to know what you believe in, what we believe in, and you also need to know that they were all derived from the word of God in the Bible, from God's word. Number five, we believe that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are in need of salvation. That's why we have Romans 10, 9, and 10. Adam brought sin into the world all of sin and fallen short. In other words, he brought sin in the world, sin spread to all men. Anyway, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. Are you there? Have it? Romans 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 12 tells us this. Romans 5, 12. You're right there, just go over to 512. It says this, therefore, just as through one man, that one man being Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death and sin, by the way, spread to all men because all sinned. Let's go to our sixth statement. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. Now, we all need salvation because of what was just stated in number five. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that leads us into the need for salvation. Salvation which is provided through Christ Jesus. And we always look to Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. These are our salvation scriptures. And you know these, and you probably know these by heart. Romans 10, 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The salvation has been provided through Christ Jesus for all men. That's what he went to Calvary for. That's what he went to the cross for. And we receive our salvation through Christ Jesus. Number seven, 
It is the will of God that every believer be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now again, Elder Ivor has dealt with this exhaustively. I dealt with it in my series on with independence. So I'm only gonna give you the command that we be filled. And that's Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians 5.18. When you have it, say you have it. Ephesians 5.18 says, and this is Apostle Paul writing, he says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's not a request, that's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, you know that when we are born again, we are baptized into the body of Christ. We are born of the Spirit at that point. But that's different from being filled with the Spirit. And you remember the illustration I gave when I did the series? We're born of the Spirit. That's like having a cup of the Spirit or a glass of the Spirit. But when you're filled with the Spirit, that's like having an ocean full of the Spirit. And, you, and that's when you have access to the full power of the Holy Spirit, that full power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is reminding us about in Acts 1.8. You don't have to go there. You remember Acts 1.8 when he says, when the, when the Spirit has come, I'm sorry, when, uh, when, uh, when, uh, it says when the Holy Spirit has come, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come, you will receive power. He's talking about that full, complete power of the Holy Spirit, which we all need. We do get a portion of the Holy Spirit when we're born again, but again, that's just a portion. The full portion of the Holy Spirit, the full power of the Spirit, comes when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Eight, healing is provided in the redemptive work of Christ and is available to every believer. Now, we touch upon this uh, every Sunday in one way or the other. It's certainly taught in the discipleship training class. Healing is one of our salvation benefits. Uh, as we know, Jesus bore our sins on the cross, and by his stripes, we were healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And those scriptures, by the way, are Isaiah 53, verse 5. You know this, Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he says, But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Similarly, in 1 Peter 2, 24, 1 Peter 2, 24, you should always have these two verses together, and you should always have these two verses in memory, because uh, there's hardly a week that goes by that something hits you, an ache, a discomfort, a sneeze, a trip or a fall, or something that tells you that you need healing and so forth. You should always have these two powerful healing scriptures with you. And the reason is, is that when it says you are and you were, it means that Jesus has already borne this. So you don't have to bear the arthritis. You don't have to bear the heart disease. You don't have to bear any of these diseases, diseases, because that's what disease is. It's a disease. You don't have to bear these discomforts because they've already been born by Jesus. So what you tell those things 
is that you arthritis, you have no power or dominion in my body. I command you in the name of Jesus to leave right now and I lay hands on my body and declare that by his stripes I was, I am, and I is healed, so forth. So you can cover the whole spectrum and so forth, so on. So that is our eighth statement in our statement of faith. Number nine, uh, no, actually, this is number eight. Number nine is uh, the church consists of all who have received Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Now, as you know, the church represents the body of Christ and all who receive salvation are baptized into the body of Christ. We've taught this time and time again. Look at Galatians chapter three, verse 26 and 27. Galatians chapter three, verse 26 and 27. Galatians 3, 26, 27 says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be born again, to receive salvation. For as many, this is verse 27, for as many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And remember, the church, we think sometimes the church as a building or as a denomination or as a, particular location. Uh, of course, you know that we are the church. Individually, we are the church. So we are members of the body of Christ when we are born again, whether we go to any church at all. If you are born again and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are baptized into his body and you are part of the church body. Uh, the next one, I think it's number 10. We believe that there should be a bodily resurrection of the just and of the unjust. A bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. And you know, I, I spoke about the resurrection of Jesus last Sunday, and we went over this in detail, and, and, and uh, uh, we began with the important scripture that he is risen, the scripture in Matthew. And then Paul made the profound statement that if there was no resurrection, then what we teach is in vain, and what you have faith in is also in vain, and so forth. But we pointed out that, of course, he is resurrected, and our faith is not in vain. But we also believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and of the unjust. In other words, that's a bodily resurrection of all the dead. Now, I'll just give you a couple of scriptures here. In Luke 14, 14, go to Luke, Luke 14, 14. Luke 14, 14, Jesus says this, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, go to uh, John's gospel, which is a little bit beyond Luke. John Gospel, chapter 5. John Gospel, chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus tells us this. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave, how many in the grave? Will hear his voice, in verse 29, and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection 
of condemnation, so forth. That's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Remember I said last week when uh, Jesus went to the grave of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus is the resurrection and has this dynamic resurrection power. And I pointed out the reason he went specifically to the grave of Lazarus and called him by name is that if he had gone to the cemetery and simply said, come forth, everybody in the cemetery would have gotten up and so forth and so on. That's the resurrection power and so on. Now, one more in Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. And this is Jesus speaking again. Matthew 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says this, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, verse 22, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So all will be resurrected. And the next statement of belief, we believe in the personal, visible, imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now the word tells us to be watchful because we do not know the exact time or the exact hour of his coming. And there are so many scriptures that deal with the return or the second coming of Christ. Let me just give you a couple of things. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 24, verse 27. You're right there in Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus says this, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about the second coming. Second Timothy, uh, verse, I mean, second Timothy chapter four, verse eight, you don't have to go there, you can write it down. It refers to the return as on that day. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two, you can write it down, you don't have to go there. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two, speaks of the day of the Lord. This is the return of Christ Jesus. And in John 6, chapter 6, 39 and 40, Jesus himself refers to that period as the last day. And I'm taking time to do this to show you that this is where we derive our doctrine, our statement of belief, our tenets of faith, what we believe in comes from the word of God. And the last one is, we believe in the observance of the Lord's Supper and water baptism. I don't have to say too much about uh, e either of those two. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of every uh, month here, and we do so because Jesus commanded us to do so. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, we go to this every communion Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, which says uh, that you do this in remembrance of me. That is, when you break this bread and eat this bread, when you drink this cup of wine, you do this in remembrance of me. That is communion. And uh, uh, water baptism is spoken up throughout the Bible. Well, actually, it's not just water baptism. Baptism is spoken up throughout the Bible. Uh, but... The only point I want to make about that is that we do not hold that baptism is part of your salvation. Some churches hold that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. We do not subscribe to that. Romans 10, 9 and 10, 10 only mentions two things. It doesn't mention that you need to have water baptism in order to be saved. And you know what Romans 
10.9 and 10.10 says, we just went over that, that you have to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Those are the requirements for salvation and so forth. Now, that's our statement of faith. So where do we get our statement of faith? From the word, from the word. The word is God-inspired word, and it's profitable for, among other things, doctrine. We'll talk about some of the other things later. And that's where we derive our doctrine. Now, a third and crucial reason we study God's word in the Bible is because God commands us to do so. Jesus repeats this command in Matthew 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 4. We study because we are commanded to study the word. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 4, chapter 4. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God if you don't know what those words are. Now, some of you might say, does that mean I have to memorize the whole Bible? No. Everything in the Bible is not something that you need to know in terms to live by. When it gets to and, when it gets and it came to pass, when it gets, I can give you a lot of things, but you know what the basic uh, scriptures are in this sense. Now, when Jesus says it's written, it must have been written in the Old Testament because that is a word that was available to him at the time. So if he says it was written in Matthew 4, 4, then it must have been written back in the Old Testament. Where do we find this in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 8, 3. And you can take a look at that. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says this. And he, meaning God, he, God, humbled you. What's being talked about is the experience in the wilderness of the Jews who fled Egypt and they were out in the wilderness. They were, f- they were fed by manna from heaven and so forth and so on. That's what's being spoken to here. And he got humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but man, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. As we have already seen, The word that proceeds from the mouth of God is contained in the Bible, the Bible that we study. So if we want to live by every word that we need to live by from God, as he commands, it's obvious that we need to study the Bible. That's why we study the word, and that's why we study the Bible. Now, God is quite direct in telling us to live by his word. He is equally direct when he tells us what happens when we don't know his word to live by. And we find this in the familiar scripture that everybody knows here because we cite it so many times, and that is Hosea 4, 6, which says, and my people, this is God speaking. This is God. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is lack of knowledge of his word. That's why we need to know and study the Bible because he says that destruction flows from us not knowing his word. Now, so the Bible is speaking to us today, and the word we study is there for us to gain knowledge of him 
and knowledge of the manifold blessings that he has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. We don't know what those blessings are unless we study the word. Now, our role as teachers here at CCC is to help you with your study and to help you connect the scriptures so they make sense to you. So you don't think that you have to know every comma and every single, that's what the teachers are here to help you do. The elders, the teachers, the Bible study, Sunday service. Now, we are here to help, but you have to do the studying. Uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. This is Apostle Paul writing. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. He's saying, study to show yourself approved unto God. How do you show yourself approved unto God? By studying his word. And of course, what, studying, what follows studying is doing his word. Now, I just read this to you out of the original King James Version of the scripture as it was translated back in 1611 because that's really the best rendering of the meaning. Back in 1611, the word study meant to strive or to be diligent, which means to work at it, to really apply yourself. And the verse speaks of rightly dividing the word of God. This tells us that the word could be wrongly divided. Now, let me just make this last point and we'll conclude here. Speaking of rightly dividing the word of God, let me say this, that we do not follow the teaching of some who insist that Dividing here means that we have to rightly divide the Old Testament from the New Testament. That is not what we subscribe to and so forth. Rightly dividing the word simply means breaking down the scriptures, analyzing them, and accurately teaching God's word, not separating old from new and so forth. Again, that is what we as teachers help you to do. And we'll help you do more of this next Sunday because my time is out. We'll pick up this message next Sunday. There's a lot in this message we're going to talk about, about why we study and how you apply the word to your life and so on. So we'll pick it up next Sunday. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.